chances are you know someone who is a victim of domestic violence. You just don't know that your family member, friend, or acquaintance is suffering because we don't always define domestic violence correctly. There are so many victims with no visible bruises. It's the silent epidemic that flourishes in darkness. This episode was originally scheduled for me to drop during October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. But the issue is really something we need to be talking about all year long. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Unlovely Truth. I'm your host, private investigator Lori Morrison, and I'm back to bring you another story from the world of true crime, and then you and I are going to see where it intersects with our faith. I hope that you'll join forces with me and answer what I think is every Christian's calling, and that's to be a different kind of PI, a person of impact. And I'm going to show you a way for you to do that after we dive into today's case and hear from our guest. This is Season 3, Episode 44. Our book this week is No Visible Bruises by Rachel Louise Snyder. And our guest is author, speaker, certified domestic violence advocate, and abuse recovery coach, Julie Bond Blank. We're going to talk with her about why domestic violence continues to claim, on average, 137 women's lives across the world every single day. But first, we're going to look at just one woman's death that of Michelle Monson Mosier. Michelle died when she was just 23 years old, killed by her husband, Rocky. She'd been trying to get herself and their two children out from under Rocky's abusive control. She was getting so close to her goal when he shot and killed her, the children, and himself. Michelle had been just 14 years old when she first met Rocky. She was a rebellious kid, and had chosen to live with her father after her parents divorced because she knew she would have more freedom there than at her mother's house. Rocky was 10 years older than Michelle, which horrified her mother, Sally. If they'd both been adults, it wouldn't have been such a big deal. But let's think about our own kids for a second. When they were 14, I don't think any of us would have wanted them dating a 24-year-old. Unfortunately, Michelle didn't listen to her mother, and it wasn't long before she was pregnant. Three months after she gave birth to her daughter, Michelle was pregnant again. I've got to hand it to her, though, because even with two children under the age of three, Michelle graduated from high school on time. She was maturing and becoming very responsible. Now, like a lot of abusers, the same couldn't be said for Rocky. He could never seem to hold a job for long. But when Michelle said that she wanted to work to help the family's finances, Rocky became enraged, and Michelle's employment status wasn't all that Rocky controlled. He didn't let her have friends over to their trailer. He wouldn't let her wear makeup, and she never, ever went anywhere without him. Michelle's mom once left her a brochure about a domestic violence shelter, and she suggested that Michelle visit her sister out of state, anything to get her daughter away from Rocky and his violence. Sadly, Michelle always refused any attempts to help her get away from Rocky. But that's not uncommon when a woman is afraid that leaving her abuser is actually more dangerous than staying. Rocky had at least one friend who could see how controlling he was with Michelle. He tried to talk to Rocky about it, but Rocky bluntly told him to mind his own business. This friend would later say that he knew things were bad, but not how bad, and he didn't know what to do about it. 
Michelle knew that if she was ever going to be able to leave Rocky and support her children, she was going to need a good job. She enrolled in a nursing program at Montana State University. Whenever he could, Rocky would follow Michelle to class to be sure she was really going where she said she was going. He refused to let her join study groups. And it wasn't long before Michelle began to suspect that Rocky was having an affair. She was finally ready to confront him and maybe even leave him. She left her kids with her mother and went to find her husband. Rocky somehow knew what was coming, and he showed up at his mother-in-law's house and violently snatched his kids from her. Michelle's mother begged her to get a restraining order against Rocky, and she agreed. After she detailed some of the beatings and the death threats that Rocky had made, police arrested him. Michelle finally felt safe. Until two days later, when Rocky's parents bailed him out of jail. Michelle was so afraid that he would come after her, or worse, their children, that she told police that she had made up all of her accusations against Rocky. It was not because what she had said hadn't been true. It was because she thought that with Rocky out of jail, she was in more danger than ever before. And she was right. A couple of months later, Rocky would murder Michelle, their kids, and then kill himself. Now, I wish I could tell you that this doesn't happen very often, that Michelle's story is very unique, but it's not. The United Nations estimates that approximately 47,000 women and girls worldwide were killed by their intimate partners or another family member in 2020. That averages out to a woman or girl being killed by someone in her own family every 11 minutes. We're going to learn more about the realities of domestic violence when we talk to this week's guest, Julie Bond Blank. Like I said, Julie is a trained domestic violence advocate. She's also a survivor and an abuse recovery group leader. She facilitates the Survivor Voices Committee for the Family Justice Center of Washington County, Oregon. Julie is also a speaker and an author, so I want you to check out my show notes so that you can find ways to connect with her. Community is so important to support victims of crime and, when we can, to prevent crimes. I want us all to be as safe as we can possibly be, and that's why I wrote my book, How to Kick Fear to the Curb. It's available on Amazon, so I hope that you will go and look for it. If you don't think you need a copy, get a copy for a friend. That's an easy way to give them some support when you just don't know what to say. You all are such wonderful supporters of the podcast and of each other and of the people in your community. And I just want to say thank you. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. I was thrilled to discover your podcast and that you are addressing these issues in the line of and using faith. And so I was I was really happy to find you, Lori. So thank you for having me. Oh, of course. And, you know, speaking of faith, I think that the church really needs to lead out in so many areas of just places where people really need help. And this is certainly a big one. One point that the book No Visible Bruises made was that most people probably aren't really aware of the the terrible communication or lack of it between jurisdictions, but also between civil courts and criminal courts. Because that's where restraining orders are usually issued is in those civil courts. 
Now, in this day and age, we can order toothpaste online and get it delivered same day. But we can't make sure that judges in these criminal proceedings really always have the information that they need to make a balanced, educated decision. That's got to be frustrating. It is very frustrating as a as a domestic violence advocate and a survivor, as well as um, a women's director at ARMS, which stands for Abuse Recovery Ministry and Services. We have many, many of our ladies that have gone through the court process or are currently in the court process. And so I'll give you an example of one just uh, two weeks ago where um, the man had chosen to be abusive, not only to her, but the last two instances he kicked one of his daughters and he smacked the other one upside the head. The wife decided that was finally enough and she she left. He appeared along with the judge because he knew that's where she was going and the judge declined the restraining order. And we actually later heard from another person who had been with this judge for her case now for several years that he had told her that he doesn't like restraining orders and he doesn't believe in them and therefore he does not um, ever approve them. And so there is a high need for education in our judicial systems, not only judges, but attorneys and counsel, people that are, you know, involved on what domestic abuse is, A, and B, that it's not always physical and sexual. And when it is physical and sexual and even emotional, that it escalates and that it can be a very dangerous situation for the entire family. So the judge basically told this family, you know, get your stuff together, take classes and make this work when he should have been protecting this, these little kids that are both under the age um, of five. And so we helped to get them to a safe place and we're working with them. But, you know, I hear it time and time and time again. And there's an increase in cases where judges are returning custody of the children to the abuser. There's two laws that we're working on presenting that will hopefully help with some of this. But You know, what we hear from the judges is not that they have a bad heart. What we hear from the judges is that they just don't know who to believe. And we're hoping that education will play a key part in that in the future to make it better for other women, for sure. Well, talking about education and training, again, I think that's somewhere where the church could really stand in the gap and and help a lot of people. And even training church staff, because I know there's a lot of women who will feel more comfortable maybe going to a pastor or a counselor at their church than they necessarily would speaking to the police, especially if they've been down this road before. And like you said, they try to take the steps in the system and the system says, you know, no, we're not going to give you any protection, just figure it out on your own. And so what could people do to help that out, to make sure that their church is a place that's giving good guidance. A lot of church training and pastoral training at ARMS, which again is abuserecovery.org, but they have to be aware, you know, and part of our job is making them aware. And they're not always aware that, unfortunately, the stats within the faith community are the same as they are outside. And those most recent stats are in between three and four out of 10 are affected by domestic abuse. So like when I go out and I speak and I teach, I sit there and I tell myself I've got a pew of of 10 people, you know, three to four of them have had some type of abuse in their life. And we hear it from the gals that come to our recovery groups. I would say this is a high average, but 65 to 70 percent have already gone to their churches and their pastors and their spiritual leaders and Christian counselors and have been told very 
damaging things. And in, in that case, we actually, as professionals, can, can do what we call a secondary trauma situation. And we've told them things like, you need to pray more. We've told them things like, you should submit. We've told them things like, oh, well, if you were a good wife, this wouldn't be happening. We have told them things like, you know, you need to work on some things. And if you can figure that out, then, then he's going to be just fine. And we've also told them things like, you know, are you sure? You know, are, are you sure you read him right? Because he's, you know, he's an elder in the church and he seems like a really nice guy and I've never seen him do anything. And those are the things we've heard. I had a case of one gal um, who had a small dog and it was kind of her little therapy dog. And her husband wasn't too into the dog. And she went to three Christian counselors in a row. Um, and I'm ashamed to say this was in our local area, but not, not completely our local area, but near enough. And all three counselors told her, the problem is the dog. You need to get rid of the dog and things are going to be fine. You know, and that's not the case. Her husband was choosing to be abusive and using the dog as an excuse, but that never would have solved the problem. Another good book to look at is called We Too, and it's by Mary DeMuth. And it is how the church can have a redemptive response to the sexual abuse crisis, but it's, it's also very applicable for abuse that is not necessarily sexual and it really lays it all out. It really uh, shares how she as an author feels like the reason our our church attendees are dropping is because we are not having an appropriate response when people come forward with trauma in their lives. And that churches have become so intent on saving the marriage because they feel that that is what Jesus wants them to do, that they are not t- paying attention to the people within the marriage. So in other words, the structure of the marriage, the relationship of the marriage has become more important to the church in many cases than the people within it, which should never, ever, ever be the case if somebody's hurting, you know, within a marriage. So there's a lot of education that needs to be done at ARMS here. We even have a pastor's packet and community leader packet as well, we call it, that we send out that actually has what should your response be, you know, when somebody comes to you? What should you say? What should you not say? Are you ready to teach this in your church? Are you doing sermons about it? Are you bringing up, you know, awareness? You know, what what to do with a perpetrator and what not to do with somebody who's, you know, been you've been told is a perpetrator and lots of information like that as far as our groups. It's a needed thing. I, th- I believe stats say that about 90% of ladies um, in particular, but men as well, when there's been abuse in their lives, will first turn to clergy in some way, shape, or form. So if our clergy are not trained, you know, and if our judges are not trained on the back end, then that's a problem. And we actually cause secondary reactions, and many, many leave the church for good. Not just their church, they leave the church in general, because nobody validated them and nobody believed them. That is just stunning and horrifying all at the same time. So if you're listening and anything like that has ever happened to you, first of all, I'm so very sorry. But please believe that this was not your fault. When abusers choose to abuse, it's because they made that choice. You doing or not doing something did not trigger them. They used that as a pretext. Substance abuse doesn't cause it. Mental health doesn't cause it. So you can have somebody who's, let's say, a schizophrenic, and we see plenty of schizophrenics that aren't abusive. And you can have somebody who has a drug and alcohol problem, but it's a separate problem. We hear that a lot on the phone. Um, Gee, if you hadn't been drinking that night or 
man, he only gets this mad when he's, you know, when he's been smoking marijuana too much or whatever the case might be. There's still an underlying belief system in these people that it is okay to be abusive and it is okay to behave in the way they're behaving because we see people that get drunk all the time that aren't abusive, right? And so it is not the fault of the chemical or it's not the fault that they've gone off their, you know, their medication for depression, you know, or whatever. There's still some kind of belief system underneath that it's okay to do these things or they wouldn't turn to that, you know, even with those things. So they're two, two separate issues that need to be addressed. I agree 100 percent. And I worked in a domestic violence court. It never failed to amaze me that perpetrators typically would not take responsibility. They and merely they blame, offer it on, them they blame it on the other person. That's very common. I right, 98% of the uh, perpetrators <laughs> that we work with in arms here as well that are coming to group go through, you know, have blamed their spouses the entire time because it takes the attention off of them. And they are convinced that their wife or their partner is the problem when she is not. And so then they will come to our group and we'll be like, you know, they'll be like, I think I'm an abuser. And then we have to have a serious conversation about, you know, what, what have your reactions been? And then what about this and that? Nine times out of 10, they are not the abuser in the family. But he has put that into her head. And not only that, just implanted that for years that she's the problem. And so sometimes we even have them go as far as to call us and to set up an intake for our perpetrators program for women because she thinks that she has been abusive and she really honestly wants to look at what he's saying. But most most commonly, that's not the case at all. He's doing that to prevent from taking responsibility for his actions. It always interested me as well that when perpetrators did go through the court system, they did have to face a judge, they were convicted. Yes. Most of them got yes. sentenced to anger management. Yeah, it does not tend to address the roots of it. And it does not tend to address necessarily what to do with it when you feel with it. Now, anger is an emotion that God gave us, right? And it's not wrong to be angry. It may be wrong what we do with it. Um, anger can be good on the other side. It can be, you know, a warning sign that something's off, you know, or it could be the, the final thing that we need, you know, to get help. So it has its benefits and that's what God intended for it to be. So anger management does not go down to those core beliefs that believe it's okay to treat somebody like that. And so we recommend a domestic violence intervention group. And an older term for it is called batterers intervention. But plenty of people come to group that are not batterers per se. They're psychologically or verbally or spiritually or, you know, emotionally or financially abusive. And they haven't got physical. The tide is slowly turning there as far as the title of it to just call it domestic violence intervention, but it covers so much more than anger management, you know, even would. And sometimes abusers don't feel angry. Sometimes they, you know, it's a simmering thing. Sometimes it's a very solemn thing. And yet their looks that they shoot their partner, you know, make their partner crouch in, in dread because they know what's coming and maybe he's not going to hit them. But guess what? If they do this, he's going to give them a week of silent treatment. And that's abusive. And that's actually verbal abuse, even though it's a silent treatment, because it's the lack, you know, of using verbal um, and words, you know, and that's not violent. But nonetheless, it is still um, abuse. So anger management won't cover it for people who have chosen to be abusive. They do need an abuse recovery intervention class, course or program. As far as terminology goes, I love one that they use much more in the UK than I think we mm -hmm. use here. And that's coercive control. 
So if you've got someone who is completely in charge of your money or completely in charge of who you can be friends with or where you can spend your time or can you go to church or no, do you have to stay home and do something for them? That's abuse as well. And I think there are probably people out there that are that are suffering that. Oh, there's a ton of realize Yeah, and that's that why need help. at ARMS we teach eight types of abuse. And it's not just physical and sexual. <clears throat> it's, you know, kind of as, as animal abuse, it's property abuse, it's verbal, it's psychological abuse, it's spiritual abuse, it's financial abuse um, as well. And there's all those components. So in our recovery groups for our survivors, we have a lesson that goes through all that. We also go through that in our intervention programs. And literally people will sit there and underline all these things. Oh my gosh, this happens. Oh my gosh, this happens. And um, you know, Annie gives me the silent treatment and, oh, I have to account for every penny that I spend. You know, that's financial abuse. I have a, I have a friend that's still in her abusive situation. And that's, it was a key indicator to me that she was going grocery shopping and he would provide her with a list and the money. And if she dared varied from the list, she was in trouble. So, you know, even if she paused and said, oh, I need shampoo or, oh, I forgot we need eggs or milk. If it was not on that initial list. She was in trouble and she had to account with receipts and, and that's financial abuse, any hidden accounts, um, financial abuse, any gambling, financial abuse, any things like pornography in the marriage. Pornography is sexual abuse, you know, repeated affairs um, is sexual abuse. So there's a lot of abuse in there that we cover and that we teach that, you know, isn't necessarily physical and yet it can be just as damaging, if not more. It's much harder We've learned to deal from that emotional, um, to heal from it, from that emotional abuse versus the physical abuse. And often it spans years and years and years because that's what she thinks. You know, that's what's been brought into her brain of, you know, I'm I, I'm the one who's wrong. And then maybe I'm just overthinking this or I'm exaggerating this because that's what he's told her. And all marriages are probably like this and all those things that go through our head, you know, as survivors, because they've really pushed it in. But those are there's sometimes that people don't get abusive. So it's very important to understand that power and control is at the base of all of it. And we would say that coercive control is a part of every type of abuse, for sure. October is, as most people are probably aware, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on now when we do release this. But I also wanted everybody to hear from you before Election Day. I don't promote any particular candidates or parties or anything like that. What I promote is find out the character of the people who are running. We do have a lot of domestic violence laws that are are very outdated, that are not well written, that are not backed up by good statistics. So tell us, what should we be looking for when we're researching our candidates? And yes, you need to research your candidates. What should we be looking for in their record if they're an incumbent or in some of their public statements um, about where they stand on the issues? There's some measures, you know, at least here in Oregon, I know we'll be going statewide. They're important to look at and keywords you can look for. One of those is background checks. Another one is gun control, because every single 
so far, every single mass shooting that's occurred with assault weapons, there has been some type of abuse or domestic violence in the past of the person, of the perpetrator who has walked in and killed all those people. And so I would look for those things. It's not like we shouldn't have the right to carry arms and to protect ourselves, of course, but is there a need for really assault, you know, rifles? You know, if there's a candidate that believes in background checks for like, especially for custody issues, uh, even for issues of people working with other people or working with children or working with a vulnerable set of people, background checks, absolutely, you know, it should be required. And if somebody's like, no, you know, there's no need for any background checks for any of this type of things. And I would, you know, I would raise my eyebrows a little bit at that because there's sin in the world. And as sad as it is, God, you know, what does Jesus say? He says, it's going to get worse, right? Until I come again, it's going to get worse. And so the very least we Mm -hmm. can do is try to protect people from the people that are choosing to sin, you know, in their lives. So I would be aware of those kinds of things as far as, you know, abuse. I would tend to, personally, I would have a tendency to vote more for candidates if they had abuse training, and understanding of that. And we have a 13-week course we run here at ARMS that lots of professionals even take because they didn't get it in school. We have PhDs come through. We have master's in social work people that come through. And I, I always asked them, I said, how much training did you have on domestic violence? And the most common answer I got was, oh, we had a film. It was 45 minutes. And then we had... <laughs> A discussion. And I was just like, oh, and so as part of the reason we developed that training and put it online is because we have so many, even professionals that haven't been really trained, you know, in abuse. So on the plus side, if a candidate ever said to us, you know, that, that I get it, like there is a senator we're working right now in Oregon that seems to really get it. And I don't know her background yet because I have, I have the Zoom upcoming with her. So I, she may have abuse in her background. She may not, but she does seem to get it, what I'm telling her. And I told her about the case with this judge a couple weeks ago in their straining order, and she does see the need for, you know, these measures that that we've been working on pushing through. And so I would tend to go for those that believe in families, but not to stay in a family that's not healthy and not that it's the, you know, the end all, that safety is key, uh, whether you're on the streets or whether you're in a mansion. You know, you, you deserve wherever your home is for it to be a safe environment, no matter what. Oh, yes, for sure. I'm glad you said that. Now, I know you've got a lot going on, but tell us about an upcoming project or maybe something that just launched that you're really excited about. And then let us know how we yeah. connect with you on that. A couple projects in the works. Number one is the measures that I've mentioned. There's two of them, and one is called Caden's Law. It's K-A-Y. D-E-N-S. And the other one is called the Safe Child Act. And those are two measures that need passed in every single state. And I pray it happens someday. And one of those measures requires judges training for domestic violence. Um, Right now they have it, but they have it as an option and they don't have to take it. The other law will prevent, we've had 890 children killed when they were returned to their abusive parent. And what, and up until now, or up until this passes, DV experts have not been allowed to get on the sand and be DV experts. What they've done is they've brought in the mental health professionals. And as we just mentioned, (laughs) the majority of them are untrained and the DV is not brought up. And one of those measures also allows for if that parent has been abusive in the past so that, you know, a DV expert will be testifying to say, you know, this is what could happen. You know, this person needs help. You know, if they need progress, 
then maybe you could allow supervised visit, but this child at this time should not go back to this parent. They've shown no remorse. They've shown no desire to get better, no accountability. They don't believe that they're abusive, you know, and all those things. And so that would change that. So that's important. Um, And then on a personal note, I'm getting ready to release my second book. I have a, a fiction series out on human trafficking. And the first one was called Innocent Lives, and then Innocent Voices will release toward the end of November. And it really was developed with the idea of bringing awareness of human trafficking in the United States, because I was one of those people, in spite of my background that I've had, I'm a survivor as well of domestic violence, but I thought human trafficking really only happened in third world countries. But it doesn't. It happens every single day in every single city in the United States. And I really felt the need to bring that to the attention of people. So those are all projects I'm incredibly excited about. (laughs) And as usual, also working here hard in arms to spread the word and the education, you know, to help victims come to the truth that, you know, they, they don't have to stay. They don't have to stay. God does not require us to submit to an abusive partner or to stay with him. Um, or to be unsafe in any way, shape, or form. And it's really damaging to our children when we decide to do so. So all that work is is eye-opening and life-changing. But it's Julie, J-U-L-I-E, Bon, B-O-N-N, and then blank, like a blank line. And that's dot com. And then for to do with arms, it's just abuserecovery.org. And you can email me at julie at abuserecovery.org. Or my full name, Julie Bon Blank at gmail.com. I will put links to all of that in the show notes to make it easy for you guys because I really do want you to look into these resources, whether it's for yourself or whether you can share it with a loved one that after you've listened to this episode, you're maybe seeing some red flags you didn't see before. So thank you, Julie, so much for sharing your expertise with us and encouraging us. You are that we can Thanks make a difference me. and we can help people. The Bible verses I want us to look at today are from the fifth chapter of Ephesians. We're going to look at verses 21 through 27. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, I chose this passage because too often, Verses 22 through 24 about wives submitting to their husbands are pulled out of context, and they can be used to justify abuse if a wife isn't, quote, performing correctly as defined by her husband or a set of church elders. But we've got to look back at verse 21. That's where spouses are called to mutual submission. We also need to consider that verse 22 was written for us, the wives, to read. That's our calling from God. It's not something that our husbands are supposed to use to try to enforce things against us. Verses 25 through 27 are for the husbands. That's where they're called to give themselves up for their brides, 
to present us to themselves without stain or blemish. That means a man's actions toward his wife should be unselfish, nurturing, and kind. A husband or a boyfriend should never talk down to you, pressure you, isolate you, control you, or be violent toward you. Now, having said all that, I'm going to lay out a practical action step that's just a little more involved than some of the ones have been in the past. The church has not always done a very good job of handling things when women have come forward for help in a domestic violence situation. That's just a fact that we need to accept, but we also need to be determined to change it. So I'm going to challenge all of us. Let's open up our eyes and our ears a bit. And if we see anyone in our faith community who seems to have maybe a lot of bruises or injuries, or maybe someone who's not allowed to attend study groups or other church functions that don't include her husband, or maybe her ability to communicate is being controlled. If you notice any of those things, see if you can let that person know that you're going to be a safe person for them to talk to. Now, of course, there's other warning signs. I can't list them all here. So I've put a link to an article in the show notes, and I hope you'll go there and read it so you can learn more. You can make a difference in someone's life, like Michelle, before it's too late. The Unlovely Truth is written and produced by me, Lori Morrison. Music is by Neocortex, and the artwork is by Shelby Highland. See you all next time. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app.